This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumabert. And I'm Yannick Magnan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Arriving to the Switch as a late adopter. Ooh, I've been eagerly awaiting this topic since you bought your Switch. But first, you do have some follow-up. Yeah, so first piece of follow-up is uh, the ongoing Stadia follow-up for episode 150, All My Friends Have HomePods. Uh, we mentioned uh, back when Stadia was first announced to be shutting down that it's going to be quite unfortunate that all of these Stadia controllers basically were becoming e-waste and they weren't going to be useful for anything. Uh, luckily, Google has hooked us up with a web USB web page you can use to flash your Stadia controller with a firmware update to turn it into a generic... Uh, bluetooth gaming controller uh, i haven't done it yet but it's quite nice that google has given us uh, the tools to not throw these in directly into landfills uh, so that's cool the one weird especially google thing about it is that there's a time limit on the page it's going to go away in exactly one year uh, so not quite sure why, but um, they ha- that's what they've committed to. And uh, obviously hackers have uh, gone on the internet and reverse engineered the whole thing. So I believe the entire firmware update process has already been recreated outside of the Google website. So I think hmm. e- even if you don't update it in the next year, uh, people will be able to help you uh, flash it. Um, but that's cool. So I'm going to probably have another uh, Bluetooth controller I'm going to be able to use with something. Um, not sure if it's going to work on iOS, so I'll see if I'm going to use it on the Mac or on my gaming PC or what. But yeah. Yeah, I've ended up the update either, but uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised that if it does work on Apple platform, that would replace the uh, controller, the PS4 controller I mentioned I was using as uh, a game controller on the iMac. Yeah. Or, or your iMac just supports Bluetooth gaming controllers anyway, uh, outside of like the the standard console ones. So it would just work automatically on your iMac. Hmm. Oh, that's cool. Then I guess this is making me want to do the update sooner rather than later. Yeah, it'll be less of a pain than fucking around with uh, DualShock 4 drivers and stuff. <laughs> Uh, which again, uh, when connected to USB, it's not too bad. Uh, even yeah. when with latest OS on Bluetooth or with last year's OS, because I haven't updated to Ventura yet, it was working totally fine. Unless you have more than three Bluetooth devices. <clears throat> the interesting note about this uh, firmware update is that it does make it no longer work with Stadia over Wi-Fi, which was the main differentiator of this hardware in the first place. Which is very strange. They're shutting all of that off. Of course, it. It's not going to be much use because Stadia is going to be offline. Uh, They did state that you're going to be able to continue using it with Stadia over USB, which is very confusing because, again, Stadia is not going to be around. So who cares that it works? But uh, okay, sure, whatever. Uh, Like Stadia, like what day is it today? It's the 26th. It went down on the 23rd. So I don't. I Yeah. Bye, Stadia. (laughs) We'll miss you. I guess it it was for people that did the upgrade literally the way the day it came out, which it would still allow you for the next week or so because it's about ten days old. This uh, web page that you could still use it up yeah, until you basically had like forty eight hours to use the, the patch of over USB, which is very strange, but sure, I guess. 
Uh, next bit of follow-up is for episode 196, which is our Game of the Year episode, I'll browse Pokemon Wap all day. Uh, I did say on that episode that one of my goals for 2023 was to commit to games and to see them through to completion. And uh, this month, I actually set myself some guidelines to try and follow throughout the year. So with some measuring, I realized I can play about 20 hours of games in a month. I can realistically get a bit more than that, uh, but it's easier to just round it off to 20 hours and not commit to more than that. So every month I'm going to focus on finishing a 20-hour-ish game or playing through a 20-hour chunk of a longer game. Uh, If I finish the game or the chunk of the game I was supposed to uh, work on that month, I'm allowed to spend the rest of the month playing anything else I already own. Uh, and if I buy a new game and must either be committed to on the calendar, it needs to be an evergreen game, which means it's a game with no end like Tetris or a fighting game or something. Or it must be under seven hours as that is like the manageable length I can deal with for smaller games where I can basically crank them out pretty fast. Uh, so, so far I have three of my months of the year scheduled. Uh, so I had 13 Sentinels in January, which I beat like two weeks ago, very early in the month. So I've been just playing whatever for the rest of the month. Just before we continue, since we're talking about 13 Sentinel, I, uh, I'm making good progress on my own, uh, playthrough of it i i'm about to say i'm nearly done with the story but uh, i'm not nearly done with the story because these days every time i play maybe an hour or two uh, which isn't too much i kind of make one person improvement to the story so yeah it slows uh, down a lot near the end right that's what i realized but like i can if you go to my backlockery you can look at the percentage but i think i'm at 93 percent for remembrance so pretty close to the end yeah uh for february i'm going to be playing fire emblem engage which i just got on sunday uh and in march i'm going to be playing destiny 2 lightfall which i am uh Hmm. very much looking forward to because i'm also playing through destiny 2 the witch queen which is last year's expansion with a friend right now uh in the lead up to the new one and it is really fucking good so uh i'm looking forward to uh seeing if lightfall continues the the good streak of destiny expansions uh because that would be really great i haven't liked destiny in a very long time so it's nice for it to be good again uh so all of this of course not only limits my spending but it also focuses on reducing the backlog which if you read between the lines i would like to go back to japan in early next spring uh that's when I'm going to be buying a lot of games, probably. So, <laughs> got to get the backlog down first. I, I guess, just to make it clear, when you say early next spring, you mean 2024, not this Yeah, spring? 2024. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I, I guess I can give an update, because I think in the past month or so, I've played more video games than... Or more different video games? Uh, just one, but still. I- I've played more video games ignoring Farm Simulator than I've played a lot last year compared to last year. Uh, but you- I didn't think I mentioned it in a podcast, just on social network, but you lended me your copy of Enthusia for the PS2. Yeah, I was just going to mention that if you weren't going to say anything, but yeah. <laughs> so I guess... Um, now that I've played 13 Sentinel, I'm not done, but I've played enough to have an opinion about it. It means that possibly I'll have two games. I didn't start my safe, uh, any game on it, uh, but I plan to for sure, uh, in the coming months. Uh, but I guess that's that. Yeah. So speaking of video games, we should probably get to our main topic, uh, which is coming to the Switch as a late adopter. And this is really interesting because 
I was also one of the first few hundred people to touch the Switch at all because I was at the right. launch event for the Switch at Tokyo Big Site back in January of 2015, I want to say. 2015, 2016, yeah. around then. Uh, it was yeah, episode yeah. 56, Share the Joy. Uh, I did an episode like right after I came back from the show floor. Or I think I re-recorded it the morning after because the audio sucked too much and I don't think the audio was much better, but whatever. Uh, the, the point is, uh, I had some opinions on that episode, uh, mainly that it was kind of a continuation of the Wii U strategy, which is uh, this is going to be an attractive console for people who have friends and families with which to play multiplayer games. And then there's going to be a bunch of above average Nintendo single player games with, I will feel absolutely, absolutely no urgency to pick up. Uh, and that was sort of where I was. Uh, and I did have some concerns about, uh, how this was going to impact game design because I generally not much of a believer in convertible anything whether it be convertible computers or convertible game consoles i think that uh you can make better games if you can focus on one experience or another and i think the switch was not not necessarily the greatest path for that uh we'll see if those opinions have stuck uh sorry just for the interruption it was 2017 Oh, okay, yeah. Looking, I, looking here in, in our metadata, uh, it's January, like six, six, January 16th, 2017. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so yeah, uh, I, I had some very early experience with the Switch playing, uh, I believe, Ultra Street Fighter 2 and Splatoon 2 before they were out. Mm -hmm. uh, I had some somewhat negative opinions about Splatoon 2's visual quality at the time. I believe they improved a little bit before launch, but not by much. Uh, but yeah, we'll hear all about that a little bit later. So th the big question is, why now, right? What happened? What changed to actually uh, make me get a Switch? And I mainly justified my, my purchase of three things. So the first thing, which I've already talked about on the show, is I've been playing platform fighters recently, and I was really in the mood to play Smash. I basically haven't played Smash, Smash in 10 years since Smash 4 came out, uh, because yes, Smash 4 came out 10 years ago. I'm just as shocked as you are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems to be a common theme in our recent episodes where we don't realize or we finally acknowledge that time has passed and that we're getting older. GameCube is turning 20 years old today, uh, this year, sorry. Um, wow. I feel incredibly old, but yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, I was in the mood to play Smash Ultimate uh, now that all the DLC is out and that the game is no longer really being maintained. Uh, I'm the kind of person who likes dead fighting games because I like playing a stable game that is not going to have constant updates and changes. Instead, like, I'd rather be bad at a game that stays stable than be bad at a game that changes every week and that I can't keep up with the changes because I am an old man who has a job and other responsibilities in life. Um, so there's that. Uh, the other thing is uh, around the time that I bought my Switch, I found out that... Um, unlike my previous job this job is going to occasionally ask me to travel for business including last weekend uh, when i was randomly called in as an emergency uh into a client's office uh and i kind of wanted a new toy for when that happens because that's just I, i'm a gadget person right and that's what we like new toys uh and the other thing is it Contrary to my personal belief at the time, Switch has actually amassed a critical mass of games that I am interested in. 
but I either forgot about them or they got lost in the noise. And I really want to focus on that, that last point because I think it's a serious issue with Nintendo's current marketing strategy. Back in the day, being in a Nintendo Direct used to mean something. Uh, and by back in the day, I mean prior to Iwata's death. Uh, in the 3DS Wii U era, Nintendo Direct streams were far more selective in what made it into their streams. Uh, they were primarily focused on first-party games and big brands from third parties. And while it would be a lie to say that all games showcased on Directs were sales successes, the games that were shown were generally competently executed and had a high level of polish. Uh, and like the the main example I can think of of a game that didn't sell well, but that was a well-executed game and had high polish is Final Fantasy Explorers, which was basically like the Final Fantasy take on Monster Hunter. There are a bunch of reasons why that game didn't sell well, namely that the entire market was saturated with not-quite-Monster-Hunter games and that this was just another one in the giant pile. But as someone who actually played that game, there were a lot of really, really cool ideas in that game. The game was not a buggy, disgusting mess, and uh, it was a Square Enix product that had a lot of polish put into it, right? It wasn't a shitty game. It was just the wrong game at the wrong time. Um so in the Switch era, two things changed. Uh, so the first thing is Nintendo had half as many games to showcase. Uh, I think around the time that the Switch was being announced, everyone was trying to convince themselves that, hey, Nintendo is going to merge their console and handheld development efforts together. So that means we're going to get twice as many Nintendo games. That didn't actually happen. Uh, instead, we pretty much get the same amount of Switch games that any single Nintendo platform usually got. Um, and instead of shortening Nintendo Directs to compensate for that, they decided to give a lot more of the airtime of the Nintendo Directs to third-party titles. And the other thing that happened around the time of the launch of the Switch is that Nintendo became a lot more permissive in their online store. Uh, if you've been on the eShop lately, there is so much weird garbage on the eShop. It's kind <laughs> of mind-blowing. There are, like, like lingerie galleries on the eShop, like, I mean, I, I, I'm not necessarily against that existing, but it feels incredibly weird for a brand that has traditionally been very family-friendly like Nintendo to let that onto their stores randomly. Um, but basically, like because they've let in a lot more stuff, uh, more average mid-tier third-party games need promotion to stand out from the hot garbage that's on the eShop. And... It's certainly nice that some of these games are seeing exposure that they wouldn't have had in previous Nintendo Directs, but I would say that if you look at the games that have been in Nintendo Direct since the beginning of the Switch era, the overall quality floor of games featured on Directs is significantly lower than it used to be during the 3DS and Wii U era. And sort of the end result of that is when I finish watching... Basically, any Nintendo Direct, I often come out of it with an overall negative opinion, even if I am super excited for something that is actually shown during that Direct. Um, and I, I was wondering, since I know Tony probably watches every uh, Nintendo Direct, I think he pretty much yes. tells you about all the Directs if you aren't watching them with him. Yes, you're correct. Do you think that kind of opinion carries over to other gamers that are not me? I don't think people, I don't, my perception of it is I don't think it leaves a bad taste in people's mouth, but there's a lot of like, what the hell is this games? Or what, <laughs> what the hell are those games? 
Uh, because in the end, I think, especially with what I see in my own house, is that the big announcement uh, make up for it when they're there. Certain times, the Nintendo Directs don't include those, even if they're uh, being teased about, um, or there are rumors that next direct will talk about the next Zelda game or the next Pokemon game or things like that. But uh, it seems that when those big announcements do happen, uh, it kind of erases the last 20 minutes of just boring games or uh, games that are in genres that are not what either I or Tony like. Maybe I'm just the wrong demographic for the direct because I think I, I'm not someone who gets excited by trailers. I get excited by information, right? Uh, right. I want mechanics. I want uh, like what am I actually going to be? Do? Because like I don't care about the fucking story. I just I just want to know like what do I get to do in the game? What buttons do I push? What's the gameplay like? And oftentimes when you see a trailer, it's more cinematic than uh, illustrative of what the actual game is going to be like. And I think. If you look at sort of the games that I like, primarily like when I go to Nintendo Direct, I'm looking for Fire Emblem, I'm looking for Xenoblade, I'm looking for mostly RPGs um, and stuff like that. And usually either I get a story trailer for a game, which I don't care about, or I get, hey, we have new DLC. We're going to give you 20 items that you can buy in any shop in the game this month. Come back next month to the next Direct. We'll announce the second part of the DLC. And it's like, okay, I don't care that you're going to give me like 20 potions in the game. I can just buy them because I have <laughs> so much money. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know. Uh, so so really? I think like, oh. yeah. I, I, I have solutions, multiple ones if you want. Yeah, well, it, it's just it, like I, I don't think the, the content that they announce necessarily for the games I'm interested in is what is necessarily the the most exciting. But for me, it just becomes so easy to forget about the things I was excited for because it's constantly surrounded by trash. Um, It's like there's going to be like three minutes spent talking about Fire Emblem. Then there's going to be like six 30-second clips of games I do not give a shit about. Then there's going to be five minutes talking about Xenoblade. Then there's going to be six more games that look absolutely terrible. And just having that volume and that weird like the overall airtime there's so much trash in it that it becomes hard to actually remember that there was good stuff in there um but again maybe that that's different from one type of gamer to another uh yeah in the end i think i'd have a different approach and again the direct or the equivalent from microsoft and sony kind of direct videos are not the type of content i like make sure to put on my agenda to watch so <laughs> the sony ones my... are terrible by the way I, I will also say like this is not a problem that is alone with nintendo sony has a lot of issues with their uh, state of play namely that nobody knows they're happening until five minutes before yeah, and I think the more recent state of play have kind of di- not diverged, but kind of came closer to uh, the Nintendo, the recent Nintendo Rex. But one thing I do enjoy is even if those games are maybe not too to your taste you are discovering more games in general in nintendo direct compared to any other state of or any type of other videos from sony or microsoft which tend to focus on triple a title game and just like big brand games yeah uh, like so promote xbox had theirs yesterday uh mm-hmm. i oh, think it was called like know. xbox developer meeting or whatever and they had literally okay. five games yeah so i echo your sentiment about 
maybe a lot of the games promoted in Direct are not of great quality, but it does give exposure to a different genres of game, and I think in in the end it is for the better. And I think it does it did show that for the past more or less five years the Switch as or nearly six at this point, uh, the Switch has been kind of good for. I don't say I don't I want to I don't want to imply that it has been good for the developers, but at least for indie gaming, it has been pretty good because there's a lot of stuff on the eShop for it, uh, and the directs have were a place to get promoted if you were lucky enough. Yeah, de- definitely. Uh, although there, it's kind of weird because sometimes they have like Nindies directs, which are just focused on indie yeah. games, and then they have regular <laughs> Nintendo directs, which have like. 40% indie games anyway and you're like well why is this distinction here if it doesn't really matter it's kind of confusing uh, at parts I, I think when they, they're pretty upfront about the indies is to kind of downplay the rumors that possibly the, the, the direct is going to be a normal <laughs> one with big like IP announced but no, they don't want not, people so. coming in expecting Zelda and then seeing yeah. like the, the big highlight is like we've released a port of a PC game that has existed for three years. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, okay. Um, so th- that pretty much, like, uh, if you look at it, there's been such a volume of game released on the Switch in the last six years that even if a lot of the games that are released on it are trash or not necessarily genres that I'm interested in, there is still a proportionally... Uh, corresponding amount of really good stuff at the top you should also care about and like looking through the complete list of switch games and seeing the bangers at the top made me realize that actually there is a lot i'm interested in on switch i just have to ignore all the noise at the bottom and i don't know like that that's probably what kept me from buying one for so long which is a funny opinion six years in because I remember where you what you were saying when the switch launched, which was like you're unsure about you will you were unsure about the growth of its catalog in the years to come, and now more or less what you're saying is I don't care about the big catalog, I just care about the big titles when I said that about the catalog i Maybe I'm wrong, but I have a vague memory that one of your criticism of the Switch was kind of like you were unsure about what type of game or what... Maybe not the size of the catalog, but the size of game themselves you were unsure of. That's kind of the the, the memory I have. I am totally uh, honest by saying it's a vague one, but I, I remember you made some comments echoing either the size of the catalog or the size and types of game that would be on Switch, which would make you kind of diss the Switch, like let's say 2018, 2019, 2020, uh, the first few years. I think the initial lineup of the Switch was not particularly to my liking and it's kind of the same thing as it is with almost every launch year of any console where it's hard to be excited about the launch year of a console if you aren't into the genres that they presented and then it takes about two years for everyone to actually start making the good games for the console and i think once we got past of there there was so much growth but there was also so much noise happening at the same time that i just lost sight of the things that were coming out that were interesting Mm. me i also think that uh shifting tastes in games or like the games not being the right games for that moment versus being the right games now uh it might have also been a factor at play for example uh i don't remember when the new nintendo 3ds came out but when that came out i bought 
uh, Xenoblade for uh, new Nintendo 3DS because it was a Wii port and it was an open world game. And I played it at the time for about 10 hours, did not connect with me at all, replayed it a couple of months ago, and now like I've only played Xenoblade 1 and Xenoblade 2 uh, in my spare time like for the last three months-ish. So I, I think I'm back into it. Um, so like the, there might have been some of that where maybe the games were less attractive to me at the time just because my tastes at that moment were not aligning with that, uh, and they've changed since. Okay. Yeah, I I can get behind that, but I, I remember that even like two years in, you were still kind of making this comment about these type of games that were beginning release on the Switch. I think I, I might understand, which is like the overall balance of like the catalog shifts a lot more into the indie side of things. And I'm traditionally more drawn to studio based games, like big studio based games, uh, especially Japanese studios. Right. So, so I think like, I did have a worry that there was going to be too much of one kind of game and not enough of the other. I think the mm-hmm. Switch sort of winning the sales battle in Japan kind of completely nullified that because now Japanese games are mostly being developed for Switch first and the other platforms are kind of a toss-up if they'll even get support. Right. Uh, so I think that just turned out to not be what I was worried about. So maybe that's what you were thinking of. Possibly, possibly. Again, I do have a vague memory, but that the your latest explanation kind of reminds me of that discussion. Mm. And the sentiment that was like, yeah, 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 I know you're saying this, but your opinion will change sooner rather than later. And it seems that it was rather than later because it took six years. Yeah. Uh, so let's start talking about some hardware. Uh, one of the mm. weird things uh, about the way that I bought my Switch is I bought it piece by piece. Um Meaning I got just the tablet by itself. First of all, I I got it used, obviously. Uh, I got just the tablet by itself, and then I started adding components around it. And uh, the reason I did that is because around the time I started considering the Switch, I discovered Hudrar Remix, which is a modded version of Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. Uh, It adds a lot of mechanics and mobility options from older Smash games and other platform fighters. And it looks really, really cool, and I want to play it. Uh, But the only way to play HDR, obviously, is either to have a gaming PC that can emulate the Switch or to have a modded Switch. And the easy way to secure that is to buy basically a first-generation Switch tablet because all of that generation of hardware has a hardware-level exploit in its recovery mode that you can use to mod the Switch. And we'll talk about that process later because, spoilers, I haven't gotten it to work completely yet. Um, So... Instead of trying to find a fully equipped low serial switch, and these tend to go for a lot of money, uh, especially if they're clear about the fact that it's a low serial model, I thought it would be much, much easier and cheaper to find a low serial switch tablet on its own and buy everything else separately. Uh, there's also a pretty vibrant uh, accessory ecosystem around the Switch, kind of like it was the case for the 3DS as well when it was the best selling handheld in Japan. So it meant that I wouldn't necessarily have to buy Nintendo accessories to fulfill each of these roles, and I could buy exactly the accessories that I want from the get-go. And, like, you aren't paying for Nintendo Joy-Cons just to replace them uh, with something else down the line. So let's start by talking about the dock, because I'm not using the standard dock. Uh, 
reminder, the first game I wanted to get for my Switch was Smash Ultimate. And one of the things uh, every Smash player knows, or they should know, because by the number of them that I faced in tournament who don't do this, I'm disappointed every time. Uh, if you want to play Smash Online at all, you need Ethernet. You can't just use Wi-Fi. I, I know the Switch has built-in Wi-Fi, but the netcode is not good. It will not work. Um and if you want to have a good time playing Smash, you ideally need to be able to use GameCube controllers. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a dock that had built-in Ethernet and GameCube controller ports? Good news, there is. It's called the Brook Power Bay Ethernet, and that's what I hmm. bought. Um, but before I talk about it, I have to give a brief word on third-party docks. Uh, the Switch has bizarrely specific power specifications for its USB-C port. Um, I remember very early on, like people were, uh, debating like external batteries and chargers. And they were saying like, this charger works, this battery works, this battery doesn't work. What's the deal with this USB-C port? There seems to be no logic to it. And yes, there is no logic to it. Uh, I believe, uh, technically the switch uses like a draft version of USB-C power delivery. And that's why it's like kind of compatible with some stuff and not compatible with a bunch of other stuff. And one of the downsides of that sort of draft USB power delivery thing is a lot of early third-party Switch docks would eventually fry your Switch because they were slightly off-spec for what the Switch expected. Um, so it is a risk That's if you're fun. looking into third-party docks. However, uh, Brook, which is the company that makes the Power Bay Ethernet, is an incredibly well-trusted company in the fighting game community. Uh, they make some of the most reliable PCBs for arcade sticks. Um, like I have a bunch of their adapters and they are the best in the business at a, a lot of retro adapters stuff. Uh, so people have a ton of trust in them and they certify that their dock will not fry your switch as long as you use it alongside an official switch charger. So it has a USB-C port in the back. If you plug the official switch charger, they basically guarantee that they're not going to fry your switch and they back it up with a very strong warranty that if they fry their your switch for some reason, first of all, they want to have it so they can study it and improve the design and two, they will replace it. If you go the piece-by-piece piece, uh, route for your own Switch, uh, the one thing to be the most careful about is the third-party dock if you go with that route because many Kickstarter projects and no-name brands you are going to be able to find on the internet do not implement the dock's charging hardware uh, correctly and they can damage your Switch. And be careful about that. If I did not trust Brooke so much already, I never would have done this. Uh, but... This is a company I trust very much, and so and I haven't had any issues yet. Um, so I'm I'm feeling pretty comfortable with my decision. Let's say you don't trust third-party companies, but you would like to have GameCube ports and use the official dock. Is that is there any uh, not official but any solution to that problem? So there is an official adapter, though it is, I believe it's discontinued. So you're going to have to pay a hefty premium for it online. There is another one I have right here, uh, which is plugged into my PC called the Mayflash adapter, which is basically like a Chinese knockoff version of that. Uh, and it works great on Switch. It works questionably on PC uh, sometimes. Uh, I have to do a weird incantation every time I boot my PC for it to actually work correctly. Um, but once the incantation is done... I can actually use them in Rivals of Ether on my PC. Uh, so there, there are a number of adapters uh, you can use to use GameCube controllers on uh, Switch, no problem. And like 95% of 
Smash players do this because okay. everyone used to play Melee before and they have the muscle memory. Um, it's also just like a really good controller for Smash. <laughs> right. And to make sure I understand correctly, this adapter you're talking about is a USB-A to like Game GameCube port uh, type of adapter. Uh, actually, mine has it, it's uh, USB A on one end, and it has four GameCube ports built into the nice. adapter, okay. so you can do uh, one port for four GameCube ports. Nice, nice. Yeah, I mentioned I'm asking about the USB spec because uh, if I recall correctly, the official dock has a USB A port on yes. it to plug in accessories, uh, which many at home we use it to plug. Uh, Joy-Con charger from I think it's from Ori if I recall correctly I'm not sure but um, I think it was the official Nintendo third-party one which is most of them are most of those accessories are made by Ori. So. Yeah. Okay. First point about this HDMI dock: the HDMI output does not output HDMI. This is a big issue with this dock. Uh, when I first hooked this up to my HDMI switcher, I was not getting any video at all. Then I decided to bypass my HDMI switcher and hook it up directly to my HDMI splitter that splits my output to what goes to my monitor and what goes to my capture card, because I have a capture card now. And that worked perfectly fine. So it meant that something was not working between the HDMI that this dock was sending and the HDMI 2 that my switcher can handle. And upon reading the manual more closely, I understood what was wrong. This dock does not send out HDMI video over HDMI. It sends DisplayPort alternate mode video out over HDMI. And not all HDMI hardware can handle this. This is exactly the same bullshit that happens on USB-C because you have alternate modes there too. You can just send whatever traffic you want on these ports and the cable doesn't mean shit. Oh no, really? Yeah. Uh, so again, this is a reminder, HDMI and USB specs are bullshit, uh, just because the cables, uh, the cables can ferry along any number of alternate mode. If next week I decide like, oh, I'm going to invent my own bullshit protocol, I can implement it as an alternate mode on USB. And if your hardware on your chain doesn't handle that, too bad. Uh, just because something uses an HDMI or a USB-C cable does not mean it is actually transmitting HDMI or USB-C. So that sucks. Uh, This is not a problem that is limited to cheap HDMI hardware either. Like, my HDMI 2 switcher is the fanciest fucking HDMI 2 switcher I could find because it can handle multiple 4K 60 HDR signals. It just doesn't implement DisplayPort because who the fuck uses HDMI to DisplayPort to transfer DisplayPort? These guys. Um, yeah, why are they doing that exactly? I have no idea. Um, my guess is that first of all, I believe it allows you to like circumvent like HDCP licensing stuff, mm-hmm. so it can be a little bit cheaper. The other thing is I believe these are technically made for fighting game tournament organizers, which means they're generally going to be plugging them into computer displays because those are the displays that are easy to have a lot of for tournament organizers. So maybe it's just like nobody's going to be plugging this into TV hardware, but it kind of sucks. And I am connecting it to a monitor. I just have a switcher connected to my monitor, which doesn't handle this. So it, it, this part sucks. Uh, I'm living with it. Uh, I just have to manually swap out the cable in my uh, HDMI splitter uh, to switch between 
Nintendo Switch and everything else. But it kind of sucks because I finally had my setup completely automatically switching and now I can't anymore. Right. Which means, though, the Switch can output display port, a display port signal? I don't know if it's transcoded or what. Uh, right. I, maybe it can. Huh. I don't know enough about the hardware details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the second point I want to talk about is the design of this thing. Uh, so if you go on the website for this, you should be able to see a picture. Uh, it's absolutely tiny, and I really appreciate that. It's just like a square from the top with a slot going down through the middle where you put your switch. On the front of it, there are two GameCube controller ports and two USB-A ports. Um you don't actually like slide the switch into a slot like you do with the official dock, uh, which is great because uh, where I actually ended up putting my switch, I wouldn't have enough height buffer to actually have the slot and then being able to take out the switch from that slot. Um, so just having it like a, a, a dock that sits there is just more convenient for me. And I think you're not the only one with this problem because... It does make the official do- the official dock, excuse me, a bit less case friendly, mm-hmm. and for a console that I don't say it's one hundred percent targeted for kids, but can be targeted for kids, and that is not cheap to replace. Having a case on it is a good idea, but having a kid ask them to remove the case to put it in the dock is less than ideal. Let's put it this way. Yeah. Um, we were having somewhat having this problem with my nephew, but also <laughs> Tony lo- loves to have some cases around his switches. And every time he wants to put it in the dock, he has to remove it from the case, put it in the switch. And in depending, I think nowadays, even some of the, I think the switch OLED's dock is on its side because it's easier to pull out on the shelf where we put all the AV equipment uh, under the TV because there's not enough height. So it's literally yeah. like, on its front like laying down which is Mm -hmm. funny and weird at the same time yeah uh so the one issue i have with the physical design of this device is the usb-c connector uh the connector is on a swivel mount so you can actually like lay it flat inside the docking slot during transport and storage or at a 90-ish degree angle so that the switch can be connected perpendicular to the base of the dock Mm-hmm. The problem is trying to line up the connector is really hard because if you're not holding it in place as you try to line them up, uh, the physical contact of the switch will push the connector down into the flat position, which means it's impossible to connect. Um, so you have to manually hold the connector. And it, even when I'm holding the connector in place, it often takes me like two or three tries just to get the switch connected. And it's not ideal. I would like it to be more convenient if it was just always in the upward position and couldn't swivel down. There would be a lot less potential for error. Um But yeah, I'm nitpicking. Um, (laughs) Otherwise, like this dock, I'm pretty satisfied with it, aside from the big uh, HDMI support thing, which kind of sucks. Which at some point you could replace with an official dock, knowing that now you also have the uh, GameCube adapter that uses it to PC. Yeah, I usually just leave it hooked up to my PC, though. Uh, But yeah, I could Mm. do that, too. it doesn't change my space concerns right now, but um, yeah, right. it, it's something I could do. Next, let's talk about the controllers. Uh, so the the first question is going to be like, why not Joy-Cons? And I think I've 
talked about this issue a lot on the show before, so it's not going to be a surprise, but Joy-Con drift is a long-documented issue, and it has never been addressed by Nintendo in either a hardware revision or when they made the Switch Lite. The Switch Lite also has Joy-Con drift, except that pisses you mm-hmm. off even more because you have to replace the whole thing uh, or swap out the sticks uh, yourself. All Joy-Cons will eventually fail with enough usage, and unfortunately for everyone, enough usage is not enough usage. Uh, it's... it's <laughs> So, yeah, uh, I'm also not particularly a fan of them ergonomically either. Totally agree with you on that. It is one of the rare game console thingy that I cannot really play for too long without having, similar to RSI, yeah. uh, pain in my ends. I think the other one that reminded me of that was the, was the PS Vita original. Mm. Uh, I know you had different... I think you were not suffering too much of this, but I know with the Vita, I couldn't play like hours and hours like I would with the PS5 control or PS4 controller or a PS3 controller at this point. <laughs> no, I, I was trying to compare it with something else, but I kind of realized that I only use Sony controllers. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I've definitely had some similar issues with uh, PSP and Vita. So it's and it's mm. not just PSP when uh, PS Vita 1000, it's also PS Vita 2000 as well. Uh, okay, it's just not super comfortable. Um, the number of games in which Joy-Cons or Amiibo, which require NFC, which is generally only in Joy-Cons or the Pro Controller, uh, the games where that's required to get the full experience are limited enough that it's not really an issue for me to not be able to play them to their full extent. Uh, but of course, if I ever do need them, nothing prevents me from buying a fresh pair uh, down the line. In fact, I'm probably going to buy like maybe two pairs of Joy-Con just around the time the Switch gets like a switch replacement gets announced just to have some <laughs> because you never know um but for for now it's not a priority just to make it clear you do have a pair of joycon right now no oh oh okay so you're planning to buy some but you don't have any right now i don't have any joycon huh and like it, it's not even a priority to get any anytime soon and we'll get to why in a little bit um, so obviously, since we talked about the dock, I'm going to talk about GameCube controllers. Uh, one issue with the GameCube controller ports on the uh, Brook PowerBay Ethernet is that the grip on the controller ports is very strong, and it can be possible for the suction when removing a controller to slide the inner part of the controller connector out of the connector. Uh, wow. So, yeah, so... I've always just been able to snap it back in just fine. But if you are particularly concerned about damaging your GameCube controllers, uh, that is something you need to know. Obviously, uh, GameCube controllers are very tailored to specific kinds of games. They are less than ideal for 2D games, especially uh, as someone who tried to play through the Mega Man Legacy Collection or whatever it was called, the Anniversary Collection on the GameCube back in the day. I can tell you 2D games, not good. Uh, Bad D-pad. The button size and position is very awkward, especially if you're playing ports of NES games. Uh, So would not recommend it for those games. Uh, It's also limited in what buttons are on there uh the gamecube controller only has three shoulder buttons l r and z instead of switches l r z l and z r buttons it also doesn't have a minus or select button uh so you can't really use it as a universal controller for all switch games uh it also doesn't have a share button or a home button though if you press the one on your docked switch uh <laughs> while you're playing with that controller it will continue to work as long as it's within reach of where you are 
Um, but again, my primary intended use case for the GameCube controllers was Smash, and it's overall great for that. Uh, your mileage may vary for other titles. Uh, I haven't tried it with Mario Kart, but I imagine it must be great with Mario Kart because it doesn't have that many button requirements. Um, but you may run into specific cases where you need that extra uh, shoulder button or whatever, and it's just going to be too awkward to play certain things. Uh, next is my Joy-Con replacement in handheld mode, which is the Hori Split Grip or Split Pad. I don't remember what the official name is. I think it's Split Pad. Um, this makes the Switch in handheld mode feel more like a regular controller. It is far more ergonomic. Uh, it feels like an Xbox 360 controller more than anything else. Uh, so it's controller-shaped grips that are more comfortable to hold. It has full-size thumbsticks and real thumbsticks. Uh, they feel a lot less likely to randomly drift. It has a real D-pad, which is an issue a lot of people have with the Joy-Con because uh, since it needs to be able to be used as a controller sideways, uh, instead of putting a real D-pad, they actually put four buttons for the up, down, left, right uh, directions. And this is a problem for certain types of games where you actually want a good D-pad. Um, so this has a real D-pad. Uh, it also has some additional features. So it has turbo uh, that you can enable. It has two back ped paddle buttons that you can map to any button that is on that half of the controller. Uh, so if you want to uh, put the A button to mash through dialogue and RPGs to the back paddle, it can be more comfortable to play uh, in certain cases. Uh, obviously, because they are not trying to be symmetrical in any way, uh, they cannot be used as standalone controllers for multiplayer. In fact, they are not wirelessly compatible at all. They only work when they are on the Joy-Con rails. Uh, they also have no gyro, no vibration, and no NFC. So it is very much just a controller that you hook up in two halves to the side of your uh, Switch. But overall, it is super comfortable and uh, this is how I play like 90% of the time on the Switch is in handheld mode with the split grip. And it's it's funny because uh, Tony has, I think they're the same one, the one that are from, uh, there are Pokemon Arceus team. Yeah. And they're pretty big, but you're surprised how light they are, especially yes. compared to a normal Joy-Con because of all the stuff that you mentioned that are not present. Batteries, gyro, uh, a lot of sensors, and just a big hunk of plastic in the end i haven't personally run into any game where not having those things has been an issue like i know i would feel it if i had splatoon 2 or 3 uh, because gyro aiming is essential uh in that case um but otherwise like i can't think of that many games where gyro is necessary maybe i think like pokemon let's go requires it to catch pokemon so like <laughs> that's about it um, that's all, all i can think of if I recall correctly, there is a press the button mode for this game, um, but I'm not sure. But I, I do have a vague memory that you can you're not forced to use gyro to do that. I I think I remember some some controversy, so maybe they added that in the patch. But yeah, well, possibly. Um, so the last controller I want to talk about is the 8-bit Do SN30 Pro. Uh, I use this both in tabletop mode and docked. So 8BitDo is a company that has been making wireless replica retro Nintendo controllers for years. Uh, their original SN30 was essentially just a wireless one-to-one -one recreation of the original Super Nintendo controller. 
Uh, in fact, if you go to their website, they even sell mod kits for genuine SNES controllers to make them wireless. Uh, just reusing a lot of the circuitry that they've used in their SN30, which is really cool. And uh, over the years, they've been deviating from Nintendo's uh, original designs, especially visually, presumably due to legal concerns, because they were previously just exact replicas of the Super Famicom and Super NES controllers. Uh, now they've changed the color scheme a bit to look a little bit less on the nose. <laughs> um and it, it's kind of unfortunate because I I do like the original SN30, which basically was just the Super Nintendo controller, but wireless. Um, but you can't really buy it anymore. You're sort of forced to buy the SN30 Pro, which is the closest thing you can get to it. Uh, it is a Super Nintendo controller with all of the missing buttons, sticks, and most features from the Switch Pro controller. So it gets two additional thumbsticks uh, in the same position that you would find them on a DualShock. Uh, it has ZL, ZR triggers. It has share and home buttons on the front face. It has gyro control, surprisingly. It has vibration. Basically, the only thing it doesn't have from the Pro Controller is the NFC. Um, if you remember the lore around the Nintendo PlayStation, uh, which is to say Nintendo and Sony were originally supposed to collaborate on the PlayStation. Uh, it was supposed to be an extension for the Super Nintendo. And then there was a big betrayal and PlayStation became sort of Sony's revenge project uh, project against Nintendo. Uh, if you think about that alternate timeline where the Nintendo PlayStation actually did come out, this feels like what the alternate reality DualShock of that world would be. Uh, it is very strange. It, it very much has DualShock DNA, but Super Nintendo DNA at the same time. It's really cool. Uh, I love this controller. I, I use it a lot. Uh, one of the things you hear a lot about 8-bit do controllers is their D-pads sometimes are a little bit too sensitive and they have false diagonals. And I have certainly, uh, recently as I've been playing Fire Emblem, I've noticed it a lot more uh, because it's a grid-based tactical RPG. So you notice the diagonals a lot more than if you're just playing something stupid like a Mario game where if you go diagonally, you aren't really going to notice it. Um, there are fixes for that. I believe like people said like you can buy these... Uh, binder reinforcement rings like at an office supply store and you can just put them on the pcb around the contacts for the d-pad and that just fixes the problem so i'm probably going to try that uh, next time i go to an office supply store um but otherwise love this controller it's great uh i've loved everything i've played with it i played through like all of uh mario kart 8 deluxe on there and works great knocked a couple people around online it's great get one everyone should have this controller it's great uh yeah i love it and it it's tiny so you can pack it really easily in a bag if you're going anywhere uh and you want to be able to play switch games with someone else like the fact that they don't have joy con i don't mind it as much because i can just carry these with me uh, i only have one right now but i'm probably going to get a second at some point so do you have any questions about hardware before we move on to software I don't have that much questions, but I didn't realize how much third-party hardware you did have. I remember your decision of kind of buying all the the different pieces of a Switch uh, independently, uh, but I didn't realize it included so much of that third-party, which is quite different to, I guess, our experience at, here at home, because um, I think... Let me think quickly. I think the uh, Pokemon Legion Arceus uh, controller that you do have, but not 
team with Pokemon uh, is the one of the rare third-party accessories we have. Uh, I mentioned the charger, but I guess it doesn't really count too much. Uh, the rest is we have a shit ton of Joy-Con pairs. Uh, Tony has a Pro Controller, which he uses a lot when he, re- he, spend, he plays a lot of Switch, mainly because of the ergonomics of the mm-hmm. Joy-Con. Yeah. I think since I'm more used to uh, DualShock layout because I play basically mm-hmm. everything on Sony controllers, I just find the SM30 more appealing. And also it's tinier and it's cheaper. Uh, so the, the, if you don't need an FC, I think it's, if you're a Sony person, it's a very appealing thing. They also make a version called the SM30 Pro Plus, which has PlayStation style hand grips that come out of it. Uh, if you want to complete the PlayStation weirdness. Um, so if you find that more comfortable, that's also an option. Uh, I think it hurts portability too much for me. So I, I stuck with a no grip version, but that is an option. Right. All right. Uh, I'm going to jump into software. Um, I, I'm just going to spoil up front that I don't have a ton of game opinions in this episode. I'm mo- mostly going to be focusing on more of the big picture stuff. Um, but if at any point you have questions about my thoughts on certain games, you can feel free to ask them. I don't mind. So when you talk about big picture, uh, do you mean that in the next 30 minutes we'll bitch about the eShop? Uh, well, that's part of it. Oh, okay. That's, I'm not surprised part of it, but I assume that the next 30 minutes was just a big rant about the eShop. Not just about the eShop. I'm also going to complain Ooh. about graphics quality. Ooh, surprising. Or is it? There are three different buckets for games on the Switch. Uh, There are 2D games, uh, which are designed around a fixed pixel grid. Uh, And generally, these are going to have like pixel art that scale cleanly uh, with an integer scale. Or if you're scaling uh, pixel graphics up with a non-integer scale, you usually want to have something called interpolation, which is going to uh, make pixel sizes appear uniform, even though they are not. Uh, by applying like anti-aliasing or blur to the image uh, so that motion appears smooth, even though it's not an integer scale. Then there are games with the traditional Nintendo art style. I don't really have a good name for this. Uh, If it looks like a game that could have come out on the GameCube, that's what I mean by traditional Nintendo art style. It's like, (laughs) but I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean, it It sounded like it though. No, no, no. I just mean like, Nintendo games have essentially used the same art style that they have since the GameCube. They've just added more effects on top of it. But if you take away those effects, they're effectively the same basic techniques and art style as they were for the GameCube games. Uh, And that allows them to achieve incredibly high performance and uh, high fidelity games with a low performance cost. Uh, and these games are generally designed for native resolution. So I'm thinking of Smash Ultimate here is a great example. That game runs native 1080p all the time on uh, uh, when you're docked. And that's just because they're essentially just using fancier effects and higher quality models. But the same basic graphical techniques that are being used are the same ones that they were using in Melee back in the day. They're not doing anything super funky. It's just their art style scales really well to low performance environments and that works great for those kinds of games like mario tennis is another great example like if you look at the actual models i think most people would have trouble telling the difference between the gamecube models uh, for mario tennis and the current day models they just have more effects layered on top of it 
So that's what I mean by traditional Nintendo art style. And again, it's non-derogatory, I think. No, no, I get you. I get you. It was just an easy, a, a, a fun joke to make. Yeah. Or like, um, what's the other thing? Like uh, the Wind Waker art style is also something that's just timeless, right? It's just like you're... Right. The art direction is so good that it doesn't even matter that it's incredibly low cost performance wise to do that kind of thing. Um, but it's an upside when you're working with low power hardware like the switch. And then there's everything else, which is I, I, I have categorized as more ambitious games. Uh, and these are games that are designed for dynamic or non-native resolution. And generally how I feel about dynamic or non-native resolution is you can get away with using them. If I can't tell you're using them. Uh, this mostly comes down to two scenarios. So games on newer systems that use modern image reconstruction techniques uh, that are rendering at a non-native resolution and upscaling cleanly. And of course, what I mean here uh, with modern image reconstruction techniques is stuff like uh, checkerboard checkerboard uh, upscaling and stuff like that, stuff we've seen on PS4 Pro and all of that stuff. And then there are the games that mostly hit a native resolution target, but they sometimes need to sacrifice resolution in moments of intense action to maintain frame rate. So here I'm thinking of things like Titanfall 2, Apex Legends, like games that are hard locked to their target resolution, like probably 1080p on base PS4, uh, 4K on PS5. And then you just have a fuck ton of particle effects on screen at once. And you're like, can't maintain 60 i need to bring down the resolution a tiny bit uh, to be able to compensate for that and generally these are games that run at 60 frames per second so if you go down in resolution for like three frames i'm probably not going to be able to tell and that means you can get away with it and i won't complain um, it, both of these scenarios are generally helped because their target native resolutions are going to be higher than the switches in almost every case I also have this simultaneous belief that targeting non-native resolution on a handheld device is just really weird. Um, I remember when I first played Hot Shots Golf on the Vita for the first time and realizing the entire game was non-native resolution. It just makes you wonder, like, what made you choose this? You're making a game for a specific system. You know what its limitations are. Why would you not try to aim for native resolution and work within the limits of what that platform can do at native resolution instead of making the entire game look like it was smeared in Vaseline. To some degree, I can understand it for games that are straight ports from a more powerful system. So one of the early uh, examples of this would be Doom 2016, which came out on Switch, and everybody thought this game can never come out on Switch because the Switch sucks, and Doom is a very graphically demanding game. And... It came out. It's kind of a miracle port. It also looks smeared in Vaseline. So I, I mean, to a certain degree, I do expect it for that game because, again, it's kind of a miracle the game even runs at all. But when it's happening to platform exclusives and first-party games, I start asking a lot more questions about what they were thinking. And this is a problem that a lot of games have on the Switch. And the very first omen of this is... I don't know if you've noticed this on your personal Switch, but you will now that I will uh, call it out to you. The Switch OS only ever displays at 720p. Even when docked? Yes. Okay. I didn't realize, but I'm not surprised. So basically what that means is if you're uh, if you're looking at it on a TV, like all of the text is pixelated the whole time you're looking at the Switch OS. It looks awful. 
And this is even more annoying when you take into consideration that many people are going to be using these on 4K TVs. Uh, 720p. Hello? Hmm? I said hello. Oh, okay. I, I never know if you say hello because my internet is down or hello. Because uh, no, no, no. I say hello because, yourself. yes, I'm calling myself here with uh, using a switch on the and 4K it's, TV. It's same here. I'm using it on a 4K monitor, 32-inch monitor. 720p integer scales to 4K. These games should not be looking chunky and pixelated. But the Switch doesn't output 4K. It outputs 1080p, and that does not integer scale. So you get the crappy non-integer scale 1080p signal, and then you integer scale that to 4K. But it still means it looks crappy. Um, And I don't know. Uh, Non-native resolution is all over the place on the Switch, both when handheld and when docked. Uh, Any mildly ambitious game is going to be non-native res on the Switch. Xenoblade 2, I love the game. It's fucking gorgeous, kind of. It, It looks smeared with Vaseline because that's just what the game is. But it drops below 480p many, 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 many times in handheld mode. Uh, it frequently feels like I'm playing a Stadia game on a bad connection, and that's not good for a game that is not running over a network connection. Um, it feels very disappointing to be playing like these AAA Switch games that are going to quasi-3DS resolutions during peak gameplay on a device that is many times more powerful than the 3DS and has a much larger screen than the 3DS ever had. A lot of these games have super impressive world design and environmental art. Like Xenoblade is the prime example of this. But it's constantly being undermined by the Switch's inability to make them look anything other than blurry or pixelated. And in the case of Xenoblade, it is significantly worse in handheld mode than it is uh, when hooked up to a television. But when it's hooked up to a television, it's still kind of only running around 720p. It's not really even getting close to 1080p any any time so there is a bright spot in this uh i have heard that there are major breakthroughs in low resolution image fidelity made in xenoblade 3 which i have sitting on the shelf and we will talk about in a little bit and that this is permeating into other nintendo games like fire emblem engage which i did start and for the most part it looks pretty good um the main issue i have with fire emblem engage so far is that so much of the game is pre-rendered cutscenes and the pre-rendered cutscenes on the cartridge are just like macro blocked to hell uh so they look <laughs> like you're watching a badly compressed youtube video which sucks oh, for a triple a game on the switch again fun but at least they're making progress on low resolution image fidelity to some degree and that they are talking amongst themselves to try and spread the tech so that it looks a bit less embarrassing. Unfortunately, they aren't going to patch all of the games that were already released on the Switch to add this slightly better uh, image fidelity. You're just going to have to live with it. And that means that you can cut yourselves on the pixels in Fire Emblem Three Houses. Um, but... You know, if you're not someone who is big into graphics quality, this probably isn't going to bother you. I'm pretty sure it doesn't bother you that much when you're playing or Tony that much. You're more bothered by, like, actual bugs and stuff than you are by graphics quality. I do mind it, but... Oh, okay. Um, mainly because I do play... Well, I guess that these days it's uh, it's a... A dumb comparison to make, but yeah. I do play more video games on on better performing consoles than Tony does because he's mainly a Switch player. 
Um, so it's kind of just used to that. So, but again, yes, for sure, you made a reference to the latest Pokemon games where he complained so much about (laughs) all the bugs and less about the, um, the, it was one of the rare first times since he had the Switch that he complained about graphics quality because he did feel that A, the bugs were dumb and B, that the quality of, the, the graphics quality of Pokemon was not so great, especially compared to just coming out of Pokemon Legend Arceus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the thing that saves Arceus is that the art style is just better suited to the Switch's limitations than the one they went with for Scarlet and Violet. Possibly, uh, that that's a fair assessment. But again, uh, even then, like Game Freak knew the limit, or dare I say that they knew the limit of limitation of Switch like five years in, but it seems that they did not. Yeah, they they really need to talk to Monolith Soft and figure out their shit. Right, and I I think at this point, while it always made me sad that the Switch was kind of on the power, especially since. Nintendo now only have one console that is an hybrid. Um, I'm I'm happy to see that developers were about to figure it out. Like, I'm not saying that the Switch currently in 2023 is having his kind of Gran Turismo 6 moment on the PS3, but I think that the recent launches of the past, let's say, 18 months, have shown that people can make magic happen on an underpowered device like the switch um, there has been great results but again you need still to temper your expectation that it's still running a and uh no a, let's put it this way a smartphone gpu from 2015 it is more or less what's in the switch i'll also add the caveat that many developers have spoken on the fact that they are kind of reaching the limits of what they can do on switch and that as uh PS5 and Xbox Series development picks up, it is increasingly difficult to make a game that scales that far back in in functionality. And you're sort of going to find yourself in a Wii-style situation soon where third-party support is either going to drop off or consist entirely of exclusive games for the system because they can't make their toolchain scale. Uh, And I think the one toolchain that has managed to scale uh gracefully is re range re engine for some reason uh monster hunter rise is an an re engine game and that game is a miracle uh Hmm. that that it runs the way it does on switch and everything it just it it scales really really well uh the weird thing though is that like it's re engine but none of the resident evil games run natively on switch they all run in the cloud that's weird um but yeah um capcom has just been really really good over the last decade and making well scaling engines to high end and low end uh platforms and no one else has really cracked it it seems okay hmm. uh you mentioned the eShop. we should probably talk about physical versus digital yes Physical scarcity for current-gen consoles is at an all-time high. And I would say that the physical market for games has changed a lot in the last decade or so. Uh, and mainly because like boutique publishers like Limited Run Games have popped up, creating, as the name implies, limited-time physical releases of indie games that would otherwise only be available by download. 
And usually what happens to those games is they immediately get grabbed up by scalpers who sell them for outrageous prices on the secondary market. Because of course, that's what happens to everything that is sold in a limited quantity. You shouldn't be that surprised. Also happening in the background is that both Xbox and PS5 now have digital-only SKUs. And at least for Xbox, we know that the digital-only Series S is the most popular Xbox SKU right now on the market. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, we've known that for quite a while. Uh, Series S is massively successful, and it seems to be entirely off the back of Game Pass, which is another thing that is kind of shaking up the market, uh, as I'll get back to in a little bit. What's interesting is the Switch, as far as I can tell, was the first console to drastically adjust its physical print runs in function of digital download popularity on a per-region basis. What that means in practical terms is that if you're in North America you will have the hardest time tracking down physical copies of Nintendo games. And Japanese gamers, because they are the most on board with physical media, will have the easiest time tracking down physical copies of Nintendo games. Hmm. In North America, as far as I can tell from data I've captured and analyzed, uh, it becomes much harder to track down hard copies of Nintendo published titles that aren't from the Mario, Zelda, and Pokemon series after about a year after release um and it after that point you are going to be finding uh mostly secondary market copies that are being sold over msrp if anything uh physical copy prices go up after a year anyway uh and one of the things that really doesn't help is that nintendo has completely stopped their nintendo select or uh, player's choice line of reissues of games at a lower price point so if you remember in the gamecube days uh after the game sold, I think, a million or two million copies, it would become player's choice, and they would sell it for 30 bucks. Um, this just doesn't exist anymore after the 3DS and Wii U era. I think there were, like, a handful of 3DS games and, like, maybe two Wii U games that were Nintendo Selects, uh, and then they just stopped the program entirely. And this means less reprints, which means games pretty much only go up in value from MSRP uh, after their launch. On top of that, um, so, so so obviously, like the the counterpoint to that is okay. Well, you should be buying digital games then if the physical copies are too expensive or not available enough uh, in your market. Just buy digital. What's the big deal? Uh, the problem is Nintendo's reputation when it comes to digital storefronts and online services is historically terrible, uh, and I feel <laughs> like people are just they just either don't care or don't want to remember how terrible it was. Um, so Nintendo is weirdly aggressive in how quickly they shut down online services for their older consoles. Uh, 3DS and Wii U eShops are going down this March. Uh, so you have like two months to mod your consoles. Uh, well, if you want to back your stuff up and everything, um, Wii 3DS and Wii U all tied your eShop purchases to the physical hardware unit, not an account, uh, which meant if your hardware died, uh, you sort of had to get in touch with support and they had some weird ass recovery procedure. Uh, if you had a, a unit from another region, too bad, you're kind of stuck. Um, it's it's just incredibly complicated if your console fails, what you have to do to actually migrate those purchases. Um Nintendo network accounts were limited to one device per type per account, which is wild for, again, remember, this is the company that makes 
a ton of money selling revised hardware models and branded limited editions of their consoles over and over again to the same people. But you can only have one 3DS per Nintendo Network account. You can only have one Wii U per Nintendo account. But you're expected to buy multiple over the uh, over the lifetime of the... Uh, it's fucked up. Um, and even on the Switch where, uh, t- to be fair, they have made progress on the Switch. Like, they actually have an account system now. And it kind mm-hmm. of works okay. Kind of. Kind of. But they still make... Yeah, they still make Galaxy Brain decisions. Um I think everyone can remember when Animal Crossing came out and there was a complete shit show over transferring Animal Crossing saves between Switch systems over the cloud. Uh, if you had a Switch and a Switch Lite, uh, that was became really awkward for you because you basically couldn't, or you could do it one time depending on when you wanted to do it. It, it was shit show. Yeah, your island more or less is stuck to your Switch. And I think because of that, my island disappeared in some kind of operation that Tony did or somebody or my nephew did on the Switch I'm using. Because, uh, yeah, it's just now with a different island. I'm like, okay, I don't know where my safe game is anymore. Yeah, and of course, the the reason they prevented uh, Animal Crossing saves from using the actually documented cloud save system is they don't want people cheating by putting their uh save into the cloud and then like basically using it to get like infinite money or whatever or trading items to their friends and then trading it back and but like there's still ways to cheat in animal crossing that don't involve that so i and it's animal crossing Come on, who cares if I cheat the in-game economy? It's I Animal mean, Crossing. time traveling anyway, much to my chagrin. <laughs> uh, yes, who cares? Like, it's not like it's an online playing, uh, kind of, but like, it's not that like it care, you care. I, I still it understand. Is, it, it is an online game, but it doesn't have any greater implications. Like, there is no global economy of Animal Crossing. Right, but still, like it's it's really really weird but basically like all of this is to say my trust in nintendo online services is basically non-existent and they haven't had like an icloud photo library moment where they have redeemed themselves for the rest of time like they basically just continue to screw up in lesser ways um so as long as my trust is not restored i want to avoid digital purchases as much as possible so how does this manifest in my behavior I have become much more aggressive when it comes to buying physical copies of first-party Nintendo games than I first expected I was going to be when I bought a Switch. (laughs) Um, The Switch being region-free does help me in this case uh, because I can usually find pretty good deals on Japanese used copies. Uh, They reprint the games more there, and used games lose value a lot faster in Japan than they do here, uh, which is good for me. Also, I can read Japanese, so that is not a showstopper (laughs) for me. Although one of the highlights of uh, Nintendo's Switch library is that an overwhelming amount of their games just contain every language directly on the card anyway. So you can just play it. Like I I have uh, like my copy of Xenoblade 3 that I have from North America. I can play entirely in Japanese if I want to. Uh, My North American Mario Kart 8 I play completely in Japanese because my account on the Switch is in Japanese. It's like, no worries. Generally, you can just buy any region and play with whatever language you want. Uh, For juicier JRPGs, that is not always the case. But everything else, uh, generally, it's all languages on the cart, which is kind of amazing. So what ended up happening is I I was enjoying uh, Xenoblade 1 on my new 3DS. I was like, I have a Switch now. I should probably get Xenoblade 2. Then I saw the prices for Xenoblade 2 and I wanted to cry. Um, This is a game that was being sold for $80 new. 
and I couldn't find it for lower than like 90 or or $100 used. I was like, huh, that's weird. And that's when I did all my research and I realized, oh, Switch games just go out of print after a year if they're not Mario, Zelda, or Pokemon. That sucks. So basically, uh, I tried hunting the lowest price used copies of these games I could find. And I bought them while the prices were low because I was terrified they were going to all cost $100. Um, and that is sort of the fear I'm living in. It's kind of like the adults Disney vault. Like these games are going to go into the Disney vault and then you're never going to be able to buy them ever again. And then they turn into exactly like GameCube games where GameCube games cost $130 used uh, or shit like that. Um, so that's for first party games. Now, for games that are primarily released as cheaper eShop games, but they also have physical releases, things get a bit trickier. Um, a lot of these games are multi-platform instead of exclusive to the Switch. So ultimately, the decision to buy on Switch will come down to how mo- how desperate I am to play it on the go. Uh, and like that, there's still some appeal to that, um, especially for like 2D platformer games and stuff like that. Like I like I like having those on the go because I know the Switch isn't going to display them covered in Vaseline they're going to display correctly and they're going to be completely playable and I can play them wherever Uh, so there's some appeal to that Uh, the downside is that physical releases are still going to cost significantly more than the download version of the game Uh, a new physical version of Celeste was announced yesterday um, and Celeste I believe is a 19 Canadian dollar game uh, as a download version and it's a 35 US dollar physical version, and there's nothing I can tell on the cart that is not in the download version. So it's like, do I want to pay almost twice the price to get a physical version of this game? Hmm, maybe yeah, not. Yeah, that's, that's quite the premium. And th- this, to be clear, is a non-limited run uh, printing, because they previously had a limited run printing that is going for like $60, $80 on eBay or whatever. And it's like, wow. well, I, I'm not going to pay that much for a download game that frequently goes on sale for like five bucks. Um, so like f- because of that, I'm unlikely to buy physical copies of those games unless the game is exclusive to switch for the foreseeable future, or I have a high degree of certainty that I'll want a copy for longevity. But yeah, otherwise, like the scenarios in which I'll buy digital Switch games are uh, Switch exclusive game only available digitally or um, multi-platform game that I want on the go. But I sort of restrict myself to only buying uh, Switch digital games if they're on sale. And this is where I recommend a tool like DecuDeals. DecuDeals.com is a website you can go sign up for. uh, To keep a wish list of eShop items and you get email notifications when they go on sale. Uh, it is a fantastic tool. They also have like PS4 support, but it's weirdly incomplete. Uh, so I would mostly recommend it for eShop. Uh, I think there's a similar website for PS4 that I'll put a link to in the show notes. Um, yeah, I, I've been having a great time with this website. It tells you when the prices are the lowest they've ever been. Uh, so you can see that. You can see trend graphs of the pricing. You can track multiple games. There's a recommendation engine. So if you put in the games you own and your star ratings, it will find other games that you are likely to like. Uh, there's really good browsing, including like a sort by Metafilter or filter by Metafilter. Uh, not Metafilter, Metacritic. Uh, so you can say like, Show me all of the games that are seven hours or less with a Metacritic score of at least 75%. And you can sort of 
shop in that way, which I find really interesting. Um, so if you, if you want an alternate storefront, uh, sorry, an alternate like front end for the eShop, Deku Deals is fantastic and I highly recommend it. Yeah, looking at it right now and it's it looks pretty neat. Yep. And you can also have like a, a semi-public wish list. Uh, so you can put things on your wish list and then there's a hash URL basically that gives you like a security by obscurity where you can just give it to someone uh, and they don't have to be logged in and they can see your wish list uh, if you ever nice. need it for gifts or whatever. Uh, so it's pretty cool. Uh, I've put in my entire collection in my star ratings for now and the recommendation engine is pretty good as well. Uh, so yeah, go check that out. And it's a big help uh, alongside that. The other thing is it does track physical games though. Uh, it does seem to be primarily US centric. So it's less useful for me. Um, but you can technically track down like you can say in your wish list, I want a physical copy of this game and it will track prices for the physical copies uh, and it will notify you when it finds a good deal on them, which is really cool. Okay, so that's that's it for physical versus digital. Let's move on to homebrew because as I mentioned, I, I bought a moddable Switch, but uh, I have yet to successfully mod my Switch and I'll kind of explain why. Uh, so Switch modding is done through what we used to call tether jailbreaks in the iOS community. Uh, if you want to boot into your modded firmware, you need to run what's called an RCM injector while in a special reco- recovery mode on your switch to push a specific payload to the device that it then boots from. Uh, you can do this either with software on your PC with a USB-C cable, or some people just buy bus-powered USB-C dongles that do this automatically uh, in case you power down your switch while you're on the go and you can't boot your switch anymore uh, that would suck so you can use one of those and the way you enter that special recovery mode is entirely hardware based Uh, you do it by holding the volume and i believe uh sorry the power and the volume down buttons i believe while shorting out two pins on the right joy con rail so you sort of have to go fucking around to figure that out but once you figured it out that's how you do it uh, and of course, like that, that's stupid. Uh, who would do that themselves? <laughs> um, so they make 3D printed tools called RCM jigs to assist with this. So they're just like little pieces of plastic with a little metal thing in it that you slide all the way down on the Joy-Con rail and it will short the pins more reliably than if you tried to do it by hand. The issue I have is that the jig does not appear to line up properly. Uh, so even though I put it in and I'm holding the buttons, it never actually goes into the recovery mode that I need to uh, boot into the custom firmware. And I have tried uh, to do it myself with uh, aluminum foil uh, and it was super sketchy. And I just don't have the finger dexterity to actually do it and correctly uh so i'm just gonna have to play the jig lottery until i get one that works um i did double check the serial number in the about screen because obviously like i was concerned maybe this person sold me an unmoddable switch but they put the sticker of a moddable serial number on it uh but if you actually go check the serial number in the about screen like it is the correct serial number and if you look it up on the online serial checkers it tells you no this this is a permanently bondable model, so you're, if you can't boot into it, it's your jig is insufficient or whatever. So uh, having done 3DS soft modding last weekend, uh, I can tell you that all of this makes Switch modding and homebrew a lot more fiddly than 3DS soft modding, which is pretty frictionless, honestly. 
Um, but there is some cool stuff you can do with a modded Switch. Uh, so I mentioned HDR, which is Smash Ultimate with more mechanics for player self-expression, which is always a fun time. Uh, there are, of course, Pokemon ROM hacks that try to improve the game in ways that Game Freak did not. Uh, <laughs> so that's always fun. Is it by fixing bugs? Uh, well, I think people are a bit limited in how many bugs they can fix without the source code to those <laughs> games. Uh, they're mostly switching around assets and uh, like scripting files more than anything else. Right, right. Uh, you can actually boot into Android and use it as a really old, outdated Tegra tablet if you want. That's cool. Yeah. Um, there's a port of the game engine that I used for my two Game Jam games, Love 2D, uh, to the Switch. So I could, in theory, just port those games over easily to the Switch by just copying some files over and changing my keyboard support to a controller support, and it should just work, which is really cool. And like, Nice. That is interesting i want to make games for the switch like that that would be really cool uh so so there is cool stuff i am looking forward to eventually uh messing around with on my modded switch uh but i have yet to order half a billion uh jigs to uh go through them one by one until one works um but i I will do it eventually because uh hdr got a new update recently and it looks even sicker than it already did Uh, so i'm increasingly curious about that uh, then I have a bit of a grab bag of other thoughts on other stuff on the Switch, and then I'm pretty much done. Uh, so one of the things I didn't realize is that being able to remove the, well, what would be Joy-Cons or the uh, split pad on the uh, sides of the Switch display does gain you some flexibility in how you pack it into a bag. Uh, the bag that I use for work travel is probably wide enough to accommodate a regular switch with joy cons horizontally in its inner pockets but with the hori split pad pro it's too wide so i had like this epiphany that i could just take them off the rails and it would be fine um and that's what i did i packed it basically as three items it was the tablet and the two halves of the split pad loose in the same pocket and that just fit in my bag fine whereas uh it would have been unnecessarily bulky to try and fit it as one piece otherwise um it's refreshing in today's world that the uh, switch ui is incredibly minimal design wise though it does have some weird design decisions uh so the home screen is limited to 10 recent games and there's no way to pin any individual icons to it there's also no way to hide any individual icons uh, aside from deleting the game entirely which is strange There is a way to create folders if you go into the all games view, but they are only visible in the all games view, which is completely fucking useless because no one uses that. Um, You can't actually put folders on your home screen at all, which sucks. Um, That's really, really dumb. It's like, I want to make a Xenoblade folder because I currently have Xenoblade 2, Xenoblade 2 Torna, and Xenoblade 3 installed on my uh, Switch. I want to put them all into a folder, but I have to go to a subscreen to see that folder. So why would I ever do that? I don't understand what they were thinking with that. Um, If you use a web view from either the eShop or the uh, Nintendo Switch Online app, while a game is running, it's so painfully slow that you might as well not allow people to do that. Um, It really, really, really sucks. Uh, I understand you can't ditch the eShop experience because that's how you buy DLC in a game without quitting out of it. But anytime I have to engage with a web view of any uh, at any point while the game is also running in the background, it's just the most terrible experience I've ever seen. Uh, and it's really strange that they allow you to do that at all. Uh, one cool tip 
is that if you have an active North American Nintendo Switch Online subscription, you can uh, use another account on your uh, Switch to download the Japanese Nintendo Switch Online emulators and run them through your North American account to play Japanese-exclusive retro games. Um, There are not a ton of Japanese-exclusive games in these uh, Nintendo Switch Online emulators, uh, but what I think is really interesting about this is that uh, if you do this, the Switch lets you play Shin Megami Tensei 1, Shin Megami Tensei If, Shin Megami Tensei 2, the HD remaster of Shin Megami Tensei 3, and Shin Megami Tensei 5 on the same system, as well as Personas 3, 4, 5, and Tokyo Mirage Sessions. That is a really wow. high density of Atlas JRPGs if you are super horny for Shin Megami Tensei. Um, so that's really cool. Like basically the only Shin Megami Tensei game you can't play from the mainline series is 4, which is locked on 3DS. But you can play Personas 3 to 5, uh, Tokyo Mirage, Mirage Sessions, and 1, 2, 3, and If, which is really, really good. And that actually came in handy for a project I'm working on, uh, which you will hear about hopefully later this year. Um, so that's pretty much my grab bag. Um, we've been talking for quite a while. I don't know if you have any questions to ask me about my Switch experience, but that's pretty much all I had to say. At this point, I know you've waited so long to get one. Do you regret buying one? I don't regret buying one, no. I think like I'm having a good time with the games I'm playing, which is kind of the point. Um, I will say that part of my purchase was also justified by uh, Fire Emblem Engage because I had a lot of design disagreements with how Fire Emblem Three Houses was being made. And I didn't think it was going to appeal to me because it was deviating too much from what I like in Fire Emblem games. And Fire Emblem Engage is just like, oh no, this is the game that you've been waiting for. Uh, it pretty much undoes all of the changes that were done by Three Houses. Not because Three Houses changes were poorly received. In fact, Three Houses is probably widely considered to be the best Fire Emblem game. Uh, and it gained a lot of fans to the series because it was different from previous Fire Emblem games. But I think what's really interesting is they sort of have this new division in uh, the Fire Emblem series where they have games like three houses for people who like games like persona and they Mm -hmm. have games like engage which are for classic fire emblem fans and they're sort of having like these two split series going on now uh from now on and there's also a lot of interesting overlap between fire emblem engages mechanics and the fire emblem heroes mobile game which makes it seem like they're trying to appeal to the people who only play the Fire Emblem Heroes mobile game to attract them to buy a Switch, which is really interesting. So yeah, I think like it, it, I'm having a good time with the Switch uh, and the games that I've been playing on it. Like uh, I don't think I've rated anything lower than a four out of five so far. Uh, so I'm I'm having a good time, and they're they're definitely making their way on on my list of games for the end of the year. Um, nice. So, no, I don't regret the purchase at all. Good. Uh, no, that wasn't my main question, because I know you waited for so long to possibly get one or consider buying one. So, knowing that you took your sweet time to decide whether you would get one or not, um, and that you've been pretty a big fan of usually uh, and the console from Nintendo, um, I was eager to get your opinion about this quote-unquote latest one, even if it's no longer latest or the newest uh it's been with us for a long while um i am personally eager to see what's coming next from nintendo 
console-wise, I, I think you've mentioned a couple of times during your graphics section that uh, game developers have been pretty vocal, I say in the past year, about kind of saying that they're at the limit of what they can do with the Switch. Um, to be fair, they're also saying that about Series S, but they can't back out of that one. <laughs> yeah, uh, which again, I think I have a grain of salt, but even... Even then, with the NL console, Nintendo has a tendency to kind of introduce a kind of mid-generation console, mm-hmm. like we've seen with the new 3DS. Um, am I blanking with? There was, was oh yeah, there was a three, there was a DS XL, or what was the the there DSi? There was a DSi, DSi XL, and then 3DS. We got the 3DS XL, the new 3DS, the new 3DS XL, then 2DS, the new 2DS, the new 2DS XL. Right, but the new 3DS consoles were a little bit more powerful than the normal yes. 3DS consoles, which was the same thing, if I recall correctly, with the DSi? Yes. So I kind of wonder if that's going to happen, and I'm eager to see when. There's, there has been lots of rumors about uh, Switch Pro, whatever it's named, will be, uh, more, which is more or less a more powerful Switch. Um, but yeah, I'm eager to see... Now that we're starting the year seven, yeah, it will be year seven this March that we'll start of the Switch. Where, like, what's the remainder of the future for the Switch? Um, I start to believe that we're kind of in its last leg. Yeah. Uh, not the last, not its last year, but for sure. I give it maybe, I don't want to be generous, but like, let's say if there's not nothing new in the next three years, then I'll be quite surprised. Uh, but my bet is say for sure there's going to be something new in the next three years. Uh, or I could even say like 2025 maybe. Uh, uh, don't quote me on that, but I'm eager to see what will be next and what will be the compatibility. Uh, I think with, a good comparison that can be made is with uh, this PS5, the PS4 and the PS5 with Sony Switch to more PC-like component. It does mean for a simpler backward compatibility a story, even if we're still talking about Sony here. <laughs> backward compatibility is never as simple with them, but I'm really here to see what Sony, uh, what, what Nintendo will do um, if they'll just cut uh, and make the new console just be something completely new, or as we'll have a half, quote unquote, half generation product or late generation product to fill uh, a bigger gap to give us maybe more than three years of uh, lifespan remaining if they decide to introduce something new. I don't think they can get away with just a, like a, a mid cycle update because, like, the PS4 mid cycle came out like three years into the the console right. lifespan, not six years into it. So I think Agreed. like the, the generation is pretty much done and your mid cycle was the OLED and the switch Lite, which were like, to be fair, there is a hardware upgrade and that is just incredibly minor. It uses the Marico chip instead of the original Tegra, uh, which is slightly faster and slightly, uh, slightly lower power. So you get better battery life. Right. And, don't get me wrong, I've seen the Switch OLED, Tony has one now, uh, for what, maybe the last six months, or not even, but it's more in our recent history, um, and you know what, like, I've dissed the screen, uh, even if I'm a big OLED fan, or I dissed the screen as its main upgrade, let's put it this way, but 
it's pretty neat uh, <laughs> compared to the screen on the original uh, Nintendo Switch. Uh, whereas I remember watching Tony play some Pokemon NL and then I did uh, some preparation for my Game of the Year episode in December uh, and I boot up the original Switch. I was like, oh my god, the screen is so shitty. So yeah, <laughs> I remember having those thoughts. But I tend to agree with you. Um, but I'm... Again, I don't follow the, the Switch rumors, but... It seems that it's going to be interesting what Nintendo will do. So I'm kind of eager to see uh, what will happen there. Um, or if we'll change concept again. Are we going back to a two-console strategy? I don't know. I think that ship has sailed. But again, future will see. Will tell us. Yeah, I am very much looking forward to seeing how things go. And I hope they go in the right way because... It sucks to see Nintendo sort of stumble every second console they make these days. Yes. Yes, and these days is more or less for the past 20 years. Yeah. Uh, so, yep, I'm hopeful, uh, and we shall see. But that's it for me. Good. So you can find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibly.net slash a one eight uh one nine eight, excuse me, so hundred and ninety-eight. We're close to get to two hundred episodes. You can also find our back catalog at limitlesspossibility.net. You can and I'll use hashtag finally find the show on the Fediverse at at uh, at mastodon.social slash at l-i-m-i-p-o underscore podcast so yes we're using the same handle but we moved the account to mastodon you can also find us individually there on the fediverse i am at no i am on mastodon.social slash at luco so that's l-u-c-c-o and you can find yannick at sakarina at icosahedron.website good and we'll see you in two weeks See you in two weeks.